You know, I'm not sure because there are so many prestigious fly fishing publications out there, man. You know, to say that one is any better than the other or carries any more weight than the other, you know, I'm not sure if that's the case because a lot of the fly fishing publications are a little different. For example, whenever I write a story for American Angler, they really try to hammer home the cultural stuff, the, even the societal impact of fly fishing. Whereas the Drake, you know, they do a lot of stuff with conservation. So I've been able to write a few different things conservation-wise for them. Um, you know, so even though I've been in both, I'm not sure that one helps with the other just because the message they each is trying to send is just a little bit different. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Fly Crate. Get double the flies when you join their monthly fly club for a fun way to learn fly fishing and discover new flies each month. Just use the code DOUBLETHEFLIES at checkout or stock up on flies for your next trip and get free shipping on all orders of $15 or more. Go to www.theflycrate.com to adventure by the fly. We're looking to get a little more interactive with you, the listeners. So if you've got some ideas regarding topics, some questions maybe you'd like to ask some of our guests, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the podcast, shoot me an email at mark at flyfishing97.com, and we'll try the best to get your questions answered. At the same time, get some of the guests that you would like to hear from. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, and thanks for joining us this time around. We've actually got a return guest to the program. He was so good, we wanted to have him back. We got Nick Delvecchio from <laughs> Wildwood Outfitters, outfitter, guide, writer. Uh, he's got a blog, he's doing uh, magazine articles, and just a wealth of information. Nick, um, good to hook up again. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to get together and talk again. Absolutely. So, uh, how, how's the season been for you? Has it been, you know, guiding wise? Let's start out there. We'll get, we'll dig. I want to dig into some writing stuff and 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 some of the things that you're working on. But first off, I'm curious about how the season's been. Like, how uh, any takeaways? Any uh, any kind of a conversation about how the the fly fishing's been? Yeah, you know, our season has just been phenomenal. It's slowing down a little bit now before we get a little bit of a fall picked me up, um, you know, but our summer season was fantastic. We had plenty of rain here in Pennsylvania all through the summer and kept the streams nice and full and cool. And boy, the trout responded and we had guests come in from over a dozen States in our first year in operation. And a lot of them left with some really cool pictures of some just amazing fish that they were able to catch. Any takeaways uh, this year as far as fly selection? Like, did you see anything different or unusual that uh, maybe you had to adjust a bit, or was it kind of business as usual? Um, You know, for the most part, it was business as usual. If anything, our hatches were actually maybe a bit dampened um, compared to other years because we had an incredibly wet June, perhaps one of our wettest Junes in recent memory. So, that kind of threw some of the hatches off. We were waiting around for the sulfurs in May a little longer than usual. And then the drakes kind of took a bit of a downturn compared to other years, at least on our local waters, not everywhere. But, you know, so that meant we were fishing a lot more nymph rigs. But I'll tell you what that really meant was that we caught just some great fish all through the year when otherwise we might have been 
throwing dry flies and having a great time catching, you know, fish on top, we were really able to get into some of the big boys throughout summer by fishing low. I know you and your guidance service covers a lot of, uh, of PA and, and, uh, further North, but I'm curious how the Lake Erie Tribs fished for you this year. Cause I've heard some pretty good reports. Yeah. Last spring, um, they were excellent, Ohio and Pennsylvania. And, you know, we're just kind of getting into the start of where people are watching those Lake Erie water temperatures and hoping for rain and looking for the days to get a little bit shorter. And, you know, our run happens a little later than maybe a little further north into New York. I know if you look into what's going on up there, man, those guys are already catching browns and kings and the odd steelhead. And we're still about a month away here in Pennsylvania, but Last spring, the run was excellent. I mean, we had just phenomenal days up there, and we're ready and looking forward to more of the same here this fall and winter. That's great. Yeah, it's been, uh, by all accounts, a, a great year so far. And, and let's face it, once we start hitting this fall weather, things usually start picking up again. Yeah, you know, this just these last couple of weeks, it's just been a little cooler. You get that little breeze that reminds you it falls around the corner, and just something about it makes you dig into the streamer box and, get out the fleece coat you're just ready to go i don't know something about falls just synonymous with getting out there and spending as many days on the water as you can you know the funny thing once that once that um temperature overnight drops that quite a bit then all of a sudden those water temperatures and those fish just wake up and strap on the feed bags i know i'm i get excited this time of year i really do they do it's amazing it's amazing how they can just sense that even degree or two change in those a little bit longer nights a little bit cooler nights and all of a sudden there's no midday lull anymore i mean those those trout they just gorge all day long and i know soon enough i'll be wishing for the days of wet waiting season but for now that little bit of coolness in the air and having to put the waders back on it's it's exciting have you been at the tine bench a lot this year or is that something you save for winter mostly not a ton. Um, you know, I don't, there, there's only so many irons to be put in the fire and there's so many people out there that, you know, are just excellent tires. And, you know, I tie enough to keep myself afloat on some easy patterns, but, yeah. um, uh, most of my time in winter is spent behind the computer screen coming up with stories for the upcoming year rather than at the bench. Well, that's what I want to jump into because, um, I love getting the opportunity to talk to people that do a lot of writing, just kind of tap into that creativity and kind of your passion and where that, where, where those stories come from. And I know something that's near and dear to your heart. Like I, I read obviously your blogs and fly crate, uh, uh, and you also have obviously a uh, lots of uh, magazine articles out there. What can you tell us about anything you're working on right now, Nick? Absolutely. You know, you mentioned some topics that are near and dear to my heart and I, I know I mentioned it, um, a few months ago in our first conversation, but I'm working on an article right now, just finishing it up actually, about acid mine drainage in Pennsylvania. And I was able to talk to some pretty high-ranking um, TU folks here in Pennsylvania and talk about some of the work that they're doing and reclaiming those streams that have been so impaired by acid mine drainage. And the process for bringing those waterways back from the brink is incredible. And it's so costly and it is so difficult and whenever you realize the work that goes into reclaiming just a half a mile of stream i mean it's just it's just amazing that we're able to do that at all and the article kind of touches on that process a little bit but also maybe a little bit of the nostalgia behind you know 
these are streams that were once at the heart of industrial powerhouses that fed the world with steel and coal and now they're they're turning into trout streams and that stark contrast and that journey in just a hundred years is really quite amazing i thought it was fascinating uh, when we chatted last time you're explaining how they actually find the source of these mines because it's not as easy as as you might think no and and that's that's part of it is half the battle is finding where these sources of acid mine drainage begin because you know historical plat maps only go so far and there was no regulation stopping a farmer that had 20 acres going out into his backyard and digging a pit trying to find coal as crazy as that seems uh, but so these sources of the drainage it's so difficult to find and they go into helicopters in the winter with thermal imaging to try to find those spots of warmth, actually. So in the dead of winter, the colder, the better for them to find those spots and they'll mark them and then go back in the following spring and investigate a little further. And that starts the whole process for trying to divert all of those pollutants, mostly iron and aluminum in Pennsylvania, from flowing into these streams that could otherwise be trout fisheries. Right. It's, it's, it's very motivating stuff to hear of, of waterways in my mind that are, I don't want to say barren or devoid of life, but there's not a lot going on. And then next thing you know, you're tossing a dry fly, which I'm sure takes a lot of work. Where, where do they usually begin with these processes, Nick? Well, the process itself starts with just identifying a good candidate. Um, so one stream in particular, and it's one of the focal points of the article that I'm working on, is in the Kettle Creek drainage in north central PA and specifically a tributary to Kettle Creek called Two Mile Run. Uh, and the reason why they targeted Two Mile Run specifically, and they as in conservation groups and Trout Unlimited, is because the source of pollutants in that tributary were so high and they were they just had such a wide impact because they were flowing into Kettle Creek and then eventually the west branch of the Susquehanna River and even though that isn't the sole pollutant, it was something like 200 plus miles of waterway downstream of that tiny little tributary were polluted. So that was a good candidate to try to clean up because of the ramifications that it was having downstream almost the whole way to Harrisburg, which is pretty amazing. But so the process, once they identified that and they figured out where the source was coming from, was building these ponds that they could then divert the water into and then clean up the water and then eventually divert it back or keep it in these holding ponds. Um, and then pretty much just let nature slowly reclaim. I mean, there's only so much that can be done to the stream itself outside of just removing the pollutants from the drainage. Uh, but it's amazing. You said about how these streams that are polluted, then you can all of a sudden fish in them. I know the two-mile run in particular, um, is either bright orange or bright white, depending on where you're at. And that's the difference between iron pollutants and aluminum pollutants. And it's a very weird feeling to be fishing in a stream that has these rocks stained, the brightest orange you could imagine, and then you catch a native brook trout. <laughs> it's just, it's a scene that is almost surreal, and it's a true testament to the work that those conservation groups are able to do. Something I, I'm really curious about is how, when these streams start and, and river streams start getting reclaimed and, and things start turning, you know, so it's like, I'm sure there's like a tipping point. 
what what are some of the first signs that you would see of a uh, local tributary or stream that that life is coming back? You know, a lot of the things that the biologists will look for, and you know, it's a whole team of people from grant writers to biologists to mining experts, you know, that will be working on these projects is they'll look for the bug life. You know, once the bug life starts to come back, once you have that aquatic vegetation that starts to take root in the stream, that's the building block for the rest of the ecosystem. You know, sort of the rest of the pyramid can be built once you have that base food source. So once we have the vegetation, once the insects come back and caddis are one of the first ones to come back because of their wider range of pH tolerance and acidity tolerance. Once we start to get the food back, then you'll see the fish back. And it's, it's amazing that the fish are able to sense when that happens. I mean, it's, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's a mystery of mother nature, how a stream can just be so polluted and so far gone. And then with a little work and a little TLC and a lot of money, it starts to come back and the fish know it. I mean, the fish know it immediately. And the stream that I mentioned, Two Mile Run, they have done some electroshocking there and they've found that slowly but surely the brookies are coming back. And it's, you know, where did they come from? Did they survive in the extreme, extreme upper headwaters where, you know, where it starts as a trickle or did they come from the main stem of Kettle Creek? You know, part of it is who knows, Um, you know, but they find their way back there once life is able to be sustained and it starts with the bugs, just like so much of fly fishing. It always amazes me how Mother Nature, as much as we over our history have tried to destroy a lot of it, let's face it, um, has a way of healing herself, if that makes sense. Like, and it just takes a little push in the right direction. And it's not, you think about it, yes, there's a lot of work involved, but it's, I'm sure it's, it, it is like a tipping point, I would imagine. As soon as you kind of reach that threshold, things can start looking up. And like you say, the, the insects start coming back. Maybe you start seeing some some reeds and some some sedge grass and whatnot in the in the shallows and 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 i'm sure the vegetation plays a big role in this it it really is inspiring to see what mother nature can do i mean you figure we've had we have these streams that had brook trout in them from the last ice age until roughly 150 years ago and then humans literally tried to do everything they could to eradicate brook trout from the face of the earth, at least in, you know, the Appalachians. And I mean, we logged clear cut Pennsylvania and then poor mining practices and then just haphazard waste management processes. And it's just everything you could do wrong. We've done wrong. But then with just a little bit of TLC, mother nature immediately takes back over. It's, it is nothing short of inspiring and just incredible the way those fisheries are able to bounce back. And it, I think it sheds light on what conservation can be today. Sometimes I think conservation gets this rap where it's radical environmentalists, uh, you know, but it's almost like all we have to do is not actively ruin stuff and mother nature will take it from there. That's what conservation can be is just helping these places out a little bit and mother nature will do the rest. When you look for, because I know you're, you're, you like the conservation angle uh, in your writing, and it's something that you obviously seek out. How do you find inspiration? So talk about your writing, Nick. So when you sit down and you're looking, you know, are you just looking at news clippings? Like, where does this start? I always wondered growing up, 
reading fly fishing books and articles, I thought, man, you know, I wonder, I wonder how these guys and gals figure out what the heck to write about. And then whenever I started to dabble in writing myself, I realized that the stories are just right in front of me. You know, the things that we go out on the stream and think about that seem so trivial, when you put them into words and you shape them into a story, they just take on a life of their own. And that's really what has happened with my writing. I never really realized how important and how special the streams of Appalachia were to me and how special the brook trout were to me until I started putting it into words and seeing the power that it had whenever I would read it and feel how it just drives me in that passion. And it's, it was there all along, but until you put it into words, it just doesn't seem like a story. Um, you know, so those, those, that inspiration is just there bubbling under the surface, just waiting to be written. Um, you know, and then some other arenas that I've written in, like you mentioned the fly crate, that's a nice avenue because I'm able to write a lot more how to's and instructional pieces. And, that's great because I know that those articles are helping anglers go out and catch more fish, whether it's something like a list of half a dozen flies for low water conditions or where to find trout in the middle of winter or even some stuff about bass. It's, it's great to be able to translate the knowledge and the skills that I've gained over guiding 600 trips and put them out there for people to read and then utilize in their own fishing. Well, I, I got, you know, that I read your blog a lot, whether it's the flycrate.com or your, um, Wildwood Outfitters site. And, and you always seem to feature, uh, I used to, I really liked your, uh, what was it? Friends Fridays or what was your Friday feature you used to do? Um, yeah. Maybe tell the folks a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, first off, I appreciate you checking in and reading our stuff. Um, but yeah, we run a segment on our Wildwood Outfitters blog called Fly Fishing Friends Friday. And essentially what it is, is I seek out some individuals of any number of jobs in the fly fishing industry. And we just get together and chat a little bit. And I take the information from our chat and put it into a blog. And what's really cool is that the diversity of jobs in our industry is just so immense. I mean, I've had folks on that are photographers, podcasters, bloggers, social media gurus, fly shop owners, guides. I mean, you name it, we've had them on that blog segment. And everyone's story in fly fishing is just a little bit different, which is part of what makes it so great, how people came into fly fishing, why they do what they do, when they realized, okay, I'm going to try to make this a full-time gig. This is going to try to pay the bills for me. And everyone's story is so unique. And so interesting with the ability to talk to people from California to Canada to Alaska to Colorado to Pennsylvania to everywhere in between to talk to those people and be able to put their story down into words for our readers to check out and then hopefully have them follow along with our Fly Fishing Friends Friday highlighted folks. It's just, it's really fun to do. And that's one of my favorite pieces that we have on the blog. Well, I, I mean, I can speak to that just from this, this podcast. Like, so when I, when I approach a guide or an outfitter or wh whoever I'm talking to, whether it's a um, fisheries biologist or everyone, like you said, has a very unique story. And for me, 
it doesn't have to be somebody that's super, super famous, if that makes sense. Like, I mean, the person in front of you at the grocery line probably has as interesting a story as you can probably find if you start digging, right? And it's, for me, it's finding those angles. Like when you said, how did you get into fly fishing? Kind of starts a conversation. Where did that passion come from? And you go down that road. And something I always like to talk about is where's your favorite place to talk fly fishing? Like, you know, do you hang around a coffee shop or is it a local watering hole? And usually that gets the conversation started. And uh, usually we get into some, some pretty good spots, I think. Yeah, it does. And, you know, through all of my writing and talking to folks, and I'm sure yours uh, very similar. No one's story ever ta- starts out with, well, I got into fly fishing because I was pretty bored. You know, it's everybody's story is, well, you know, this source of inspiration, you know, their significant other, maybe a parent, maybe a close friend, someone got them into it, or somebody was going to, you know, the Rockies on a vacation and they tried it out and loved it and bought a fly rod and they do it at home all the time. I mean, the stories that you hear of people's journey getting into and then really evolving in the sport, they're just, they're so great to write and read. And I, it's just, it kind of rekindles that same fire within me whenever I'm able to write one of those stories and hear about some of the amazing things that are going on and some of the great things that people in our industry are doing. And I think that's what's most evident whenever I'm able to have these conversations um, with the people that I'm writing the fly fishing friend Friday piece about is the things that they're involved with and how passionate they are about it. And, you know, I have my own topics that I'm passionate about. And obviously we've already mentioned conservation and brook trout and stuff like that, but everybody's got that little thing in fly fishing that makes them tick and makes them go and talking to people and hearing those different stories. It's just great. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, where do you get your most of your sources from? Like, um, are you, is it just a lot of reading, a lot of time put in? Like, when you look for, say, somebody for your uh, Friends Friday, how do you find them? You know, some of it is just building networking on social media. Maybe someone follows me on Instagram or comments on a blog on Facebook or signs up for our newsletter, or maybe it's a friend of a friend, you know, it's just, you never know. I mean, we're such a, we're such a vast industry and community, but we're also a tight knit one. So there aren't too many degrees of separation. It seems between almost anyone that's active in our industry, whether that be on social media or the blogosphere or those podcast world. I mean, we're, we're all pretty close to each other and you know, it's, it's not hard to find talented folks in this industry. That's, that's the great part about that blog piece is there's so many people doing so many amazing things that, you know, to be honest with you, I've got enough of those waiting in the wings to be published that I'm not worried about running out of talented people to write about anytime soon. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm in the same boat and I'm, I'm really always grateful that people want to take the time and talk. Cause let's face it, when, when you contact somebody and you say, Hey, I want to do a story on you. Most people aren't going to say, Oh no, don't do that. They're, you know, they, they want to be engaged. It's the same with the podcast. When I, 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 at the beginning I had a hard time because I, you know, I'd probably ask 10 people and I might get two, but now what I'm finding is people are actually getting a hold of me, which, and that makes our lives a lot easier. I'm sure that's happening with your blog as well. It does. And I'll tell you the, the hardest part about those blog segments is I think it's hard for people to talk about themselves. And, you know, the questions that I send out to kind of get the blog rolling a little bit, um, 
you know, it's almost like there's a too, too high of a degree of humbleness among some of these folks. I mean, they do such amazing things and they're involved in great conservation groups and their boots on the ground work with project healing waters or casting for recovery or TU or anything else is so inspiring that I can sense that at times they almost hold back. You know, and I'm, I have to urge people, you know, just give it to me. You know, I know, I know the great stuff you're doing. Just tell me so I can tell everybody else. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean by that. It's it's very true. I also find that sometimes the, the, the people with a lot of credentials, you'll have them on, you're like, you know, it was a good interview, but sometimes the uh, the keener in the fly shop or the, you know what I mean, the guy that's just starting out and is just their their enthusiasm is infectious. I love talking to those people. Yeah, and, you know, that's where it all starts for a lot of people. And to be honest, that's where it started for me. You know, my, my first gig in the fly fishing industry was I emailed a shop in Colorado and said, Hey, I'm in college. I have my summer off. Do you have anything folding t-shirts? And my thought was I'd rather fold t-shirts in a fly shop in Colorado and go spend my days off catching fish than working some bum job back here at a country club in Pennsylvania. And then that turned into what has launched into an entire career. You know, it's at the time, whenever I sent off the email, you know, it said, can I come fold t-shirts in your fly shop? I have, I probably wouldn't have believed that I was going to have articles in American Angler and the Drake and strung and everything else. But you know, that's how it starts. And that's how it starts for so many of us is that shop job. So, you know, I actually have a couple of the fly fishing friends Fridays coming out where it's, shop workers. And I know the one gal in particular, she said, Hey, just so you know, I'm not a guide. I just work in the shop. And I had to tell her, I said, you know what, that's one of the most important jobs of all. And that's how pretty much everybody starts. It seems. You wouldn't believe how often I get somebody say almost exactly that. Oh, I, I just, an, an avid fly fisher and you know, that happened to tie these amazing patterns that I see. Well, what, what, take the just out of it. I just want to talk yeah. to passionate people. Do you know what I mean? We're all in the, in the same kind of boat. And I, I believe, I firmly believe that we can learn something from anyone and, and just that open sharing attitude. And that's for me, what the content is all about. Just, um, talking things we're passionate about, sitting at the tying bench, talking, talking about days spent on the water. Like for me, that never gets old. And I find it gets me through the winter or just through the drive to work, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm with you a hundred percent on that. And, you know, the, having the chance to take those stories and put them down into an article and then share that article out with all of our following is, you know, that's a, that's what it's all about. And that's, you know, what makes the writing game so fun on our blog is that we're able to find those folks and write about them and share their story with everyone because a lot of their stories deserve to be shared with everyone and having the, having the outlet to do that, um, you know, is really special. Yeah. Agreed. So when you're at, at your home base of, uh, Cooperstown PA, um, where do you go? Now I know that you're always talking fly fishing cause you're other, you're writing about it, you're interviewing, you're talking to people, but where do you go in your neighborhood? Is there a, is there a fly shop you frequent or, a, um, a watering hole or a coffee shop? You know, we don't have a fly shop anywhere, uh, really close. Uh, but what's happening is, and I'll tell you, it's, we've had a ton of community support is we've sort of brought the fly fishing game to our area. 
Um, you know, there was a lot of do-it-yourselfers that would go out and fly fish, but we're really the only guide service that operates in this area. And for most of our trips where we have local guests, they've never even heard of fly fishing before, despite living within 10 minutes of all of these quality fisheries um, that we're chasing trout on. So anymore, anywhere I go, I'm running into people, hey, you know, how's the fishing? Or, you know, I go into the local coffee shop or chamber of commerce and hey you know when are we going back out you know talking about their next trip out so it's really kind of amazing the community support in cooperstown and then the larger town near us is called franklin pa it's great i can't go anywhere i'd be pumping gas at the local you know gas station and someone will come up and say hey you know have you been to this stream lately or you know is this hatch coming off yet when are we going on a trip so so when when you're uh sitting writing an article or maybe you're not sitting i don't know how you do it but take me through the process are you uh sit at the computer laptop guy are you a note take guy how does how does that look for you the process you know the process and it's starting to get a little more defined but you know it's it's pretty much the same for every article so the first thing i do is i'll get an idea for an article. And to be honest with you, most of the ideas I get for articles come whenever I'm taking a walk with my dogs. <laughs> if you can believe that, that's just somewhat, my brain just is able to go to a place where I think in these broad terms and I come up with my article ideas. And whenever I have an idea that I think is pretty solid, what I'll do is I'll pitch it to a specific editor at a magazine, you know, because every fly fishing magazine has a little bit different message. They're a little different. So certain stories fit better for certain publications and you know, if I get a green light from an editor that they'd like to see it, I normally will sit down at the computer and I will hammer the entire article out in one sitting. I'll t- hammer the entire article out in one sitting and then I'll close my laptop and go do something else. And for a day or two, I won't even think about it. I won't look at it. I won't do anything. And then after that day or two cool down period, I'll open it back up and I'll pretty much rewrite the whole thing. The second time is always infinitely better than the first one. You know, the first one just kind of gets all the thoughts, you know, kind of regurgitates them from my brain and puts them down onto the screen. And then the second time it refines it. And then my wife is actually um, an excellent editor for me. Um, She's incredibly smart, and she's read every one of my articles probably more times than anyone on earth. So after I write it once or twice, She'll go through it and she'll say, well, you know, this, you know, it's, it's always great to have another set of eyeballs on the piece. So she'll go through it and she'll say, eh, this is boring. You could spice it up here or there. And I'll do that five or six times. So I'll go through the entire article once I write it half a dozen times or more, changing words, deleting entire paragraphs, honing it down until I send it off to the editor. And most often times the editor will look at it and say, sounds great. Slash it in half or slash it by 200 words. And then it's back to the drawing board we go. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, so when you're writing for, say, magazines in particular, is is that the thing? Is less is more? You know, it all depends. Um, I think most times what we're all trying to achieve, and that's me, the editors, everybody, is just eliminating the fluff. Um, you know, I have one... One gentleman who has been on a few trips and he's, uh, he's read all my stuff and he mentioned once, you know, what I really like about your articles is just how concise they are. And, you know, that is a concerted effort to do that by everybody involved. You know, nobody wants to start nodding off while they're reading an article. So a lot of it is let's just get to the point, 
make a point and wrap this thing up. Now, in some articles, that's still 2,000 words. You know, other articles, that's maybe five or 600 words. But, you know, sometimes less is more. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of fluff that can go into writing. I think everybody remembers back to their high school days writing essays where you take the same sentence and then just reword it five different ways to hit your word count. You know, I mean, that can happen in any sort of writing. So I think there's an effort that's made to let's get to the point, make our point, and wrap this thing up. Everybody will appreciate that, including the reader. I'm thinking that structure must be critical, too, because I, I like what you're saying there. So you start... You write it out, then you rewrite it. So you, you have those building blocks to begin with. So that's when you can probably get very specific and very detailed and kind of cut to the chase. Yeah, um, and that's typically what I find in that second write is, you know, the first one, I mean, it's just, boy, if I could send some people the first edition of articles that go out to magazines, holy smokes. You know that I don't think I'm I don't think I'm in danger of winning any awards for my first edition of anything I've ever written. Um, you know, but that that second time through, it just does become so tunnel visioned and so focused in on whatever the topic is, whether we're talking about conservation or you know I've recently had the chance to write a couple articles about teaching young kids to fly fish and how a parent or friend or anybody else should approach getting youngsters into the sport and you know that that second or even third run through of the article i mean it just really drills down to exactly the points that i'm trying to make yeah no that's that's good stuff i i find that fascinating that whole process what do you type are you just typing in word or is there an actual program you use most of it's either in word or on google um you know nothing nothing too crazy um Mm-hmm. Just kind of hammer away at that. It all depends, again, on the publication. Some some editors, and this is the benefit of having built up a relationship with quite a few editors, is some of them will just say, ah, forget about that Google stuff. Give me an old school Word document. Uh, you know, while other guys, their publication will have maybe an online portal where you can upload documents that way. So every publication is a little bit different, and it's it's good to have all the programs downloaded and ready on your computer for whatever article you might have to write. Right. And when you submit them, how do you submit them? Do you just send them in or do you actually send a stick? How do you do that? Yeah. So I'll send them in digitally, whether that's for the smaller articles, that's typically just as an attachment uh, through email, along with some photographs for the larger pieces that might have more photographs. I'll make a Google drive folder and then just share that with the editor, but I'll tell you a few things, and it's just, it's just part of the writing game, but few things are more disheartening than going through that entire process and weeks sometimes of writing and editing and you send it off and the editor says, you know, this is interesting, but it's just not for us. And it's, it's amazing how often that happens um, at no fault of anyone's. Maybe it's just not a good fit for that particular magazine. Maybe the pitch that I gave ended up being just a little bit different than what the final final edition read. But, you know, once you send that off, it's kind of like, it's not this sigh of relief. It's almost like hold your breath again, fingers crossed, because, you know, just compiling the article doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to print. How much more weight does an article carry when you can say, hey, i I've, I've written in the Drake, I've written in, you know, whatever the magazine is. Uh, how much weight does that pull? Um, you know, I, <laughs> I hope so. 
Um, but, you know, I'm not sure because there are so many prestigious fly fishing publications out there. And, you know, to say that one is any better than the other or carries any more weight than the other, you know, I'm not sure if that's the case because a lot of the fly fishing publications are a little different. For example, whenever I write a story for American Angler, they really try to hammer home the cultural stuff, the, even the societal impact of fly fishing. Whereas the Drake, you know, they do a lot of stuff with conservation. So I've been able to write a few different things conservation wise for them. Um, you know, so even though I've been in both, I'm not sure that one helps with the other just because the message they each is trying to send is just a little bit different. Yeah, you're you're bang on with that because all the magazines definitely have their niche, you know, and I, I'm sure that's by design because that's their sweet spot and they just want to kind of push that message. So I, I could totally see that makes a lot of sense. Have you got anything in the works right right now that we can talk about coming up, or uh, is this the time is time of year that you're focusing on guiding? You know, it's this is kind of a time of year whenever we've got a little bit of irons and all the fires there writing sort of takes a back seat through summer i mean really throughout summer all i'm doing is focusing on our blogs and then the instructional pieces for the fly crate but yeah it's starting to pick up a little bit more um and i'm working on a few pieces brook trout specific which is no surprise because that's a frequent topic of uh my articles but also a few things about steelhead you know, this is the time of year whenever everybody's starting to get excited for that. And one of the things that I've found in writing that I would have had no idea about before was just how early articles have to be in for a publication that's going to go out in maybe six months. So it's it's incredibly weird writing about steelhead when it's 85 degrees outside in August and September. Um, you know, but I'm working on pieces that might not be out until December. In fact, I just finished one up about a local waterway here in uh, the western part of Pennsylvania that's not slated to come out until next May. So it's, in some ways, it's strange to write an article, send it off, and say, okay, I'll check it out in six months. Um, You know, but we're starting to work on some steelhead stuff because that's the fall and winter genre that we focus on, and that's what everybody wants to go after. Are you a big note taker? You got a book or some type of kind of diary or journal where you're writing down thoughts? Say, oh, hey, when, or do you just get home from walking the dogs and start up? You know, I've tried so many times to have a little journal, to have a little notebook. You know, I've, you swing by Barnes & Noble or anywhere else and you see one and you say, oh, my, you know, this will be perfect. I'm just going to have this thing full of all my ideas. And then I come home and I do it for two days and then it sits on the shelf forever with those page and a half worth of ideas or notes uh, and that's it. Um, (laughs) You know, so a lot of it is just spur the moment. If it comes to me, I just got to, you know, sort of roll with it when it comes because I could probably be better at that, but there's no, there's no sort of advanced stockpile of Nick Delvecchio writing ideas sitting in some treasure trove. Whenever, whenever it comes in my brain, it's, it's going out as pitches to editors pretty much right away. That's great. And that's got to be, I would assume it's kind of a, a release too. You know, you get those thoughts out. Okay, I got this concept. Put it out there. It's almost like, okay, the ball's in their court now, and uh, I got it off my chest. Yeah, and that there is a little bit of a sigh of relief because I'll tell you, no article is better 
than whenever you just pitch it to an editor, <laughs> you know, cause it's hope springs eternal. Whenever you send that email, you, cause you think, Oh my, you know, this editor is going to say, this is, this is Nobel prize. This is Pulitzer prize stuff. I mean, this is just, this is amazing. This is going to be the greatest article that's ever written. And then more often than not, you hear, eh, that's okay, but keep trying. <laughs> you know, so that's just, it's just part of the game, but it's, you know, the minute that those article ideas get sent out to an editor, in that moment, boy, you think you're on top of the writing world. Well, I know you're hitting a lot of them out of the park lately, so I I really appreciate you taking the time, Nick. I love what you're up to, and I'm really grateful that you want to take the time to chat on the podcast. And um, thanks for being so sharing. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. It's always great to get together and talk, and it was really fun to be able to talk a little more about the writing deal because that's that's something that I don't get to talk about as much you know being so busy with guide trips and whatnot but it's a whole different animal and it's there's so much that goes into the fly fishing publications that we all love so much and it's great to be a part of them. Nick let's just get some of your handles out there where people can read all your articles Uh, we talked about the fly crate maybe just just pinpoint where people can read your blogs and uh, look for your guiding stuff too. Yeah, if anyone can check out our blogs and our guide trips that we offer by our going on our website, wildwoodoutfitterspa.com, and there's actually a, a page on our website that has all of our written works, um, including links to all of the fly crate blogs, boy, going back almost a year now. So there's, there's quite a few on there, but it's a whole treasure trove of information for anyone that wants to check them out. So wildwoodoutfitterspa.com links to all of our social medias on there all of our writing it's kind of a one-stop shop whether someone wants to read a fly crate article about steelhead or book a guide trip the fly fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com thank you for listening to the fly fishing 97 podcast your feedback matters let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.